The scripture for this morning is from John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18, the story of the healing at the pool of Bethesda. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Many of you are aware, we referred to Martin Gertel, a uh, brother here who passed away on Monday. Um, we had a memorial service for him yesterday. I know not everyone here knew him, but uh, he was a friend to me. Uh, he was someone that we had walked a journey as he came to faith, and it really hit me very hard. It was a very profound loss for me um, personally, though we weren't blood kin. He was my brother, and we were we were good friends, and it's... Uh, you know, it's hard to know sometimes how these things affect you and how, you know, especially as a guy, I'm totally disconnected from my feelings just in myself. And so I'm just like, my wife says, how are you feeling? I said, I don't know. I have no idea how I'm feeling. It's just, it's, it is what it is. But, um, but you know, you realize sometimes that um, as we walk the life's journey, you know, the journey with life, sometimes y'all, many of you guys have experienced profound loss of various types, not just in death, but in other ways. And, um, the Lord wants us to invite him into the story. Sometimes I think that we uh, look and we, we talk to God in this distant way, like how could you have let this happen sort of thing, as opposed to the Lord being present with us in this human journey and in this moment. And um, so all that to say, I scrapped my beautifully prepared sermon. <clears throat> Actually, it wasn't even that great, but I, I had it ready on Thursday or Friday. And I just felt like as I was preparing for the uh, memorial service yesterday, I just completely scrapped it yesterday. So this may not be as organized, um, but uh, 
but I, I took a, a different tack, same theme that we're looking at, but I just felt the Lord impress on me this story. I, had, uh, I don't know why the Lord had my wife come up with this particular, uh, I was asking her some questions, and she said this healing at the pool of Bethesda, and I said, well, that just doesn't fit until I read it and really felt the Holy Spirit speak some things to me. So anyway, so I'm just going to lay it out there. And if this is just for a few of you uh, or just for me, uh, I want to just make some observations and comments on this passage of Scripture. And um, and then we're going to share communion together. This account of Jesus going to the pool uh, in Bethesda uh, just an interesting historical note is that for many, many centuries, they felt this was an inserted part of the Bible because there was no record of this place actually existing. And so people thought that it was just made up. Within the last hundred years, the Bible's proving more true. They've uncovered archaeologically the site of the five colonnades when we were in Israel um, uh, for about three or four years ago. We went to this site. And uh, it's, it's very profound to see the pool where this event occurred. If, you'll, if you've got your Bible, open to John chapter 5, because I'm going to point out some specific things in here. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, it says in chapter 1, and it describes by the Sheep Gate. There's different gates that lead into the old city of Jerusalem. This is called the Sheep Gate. There's actually still uh, a sheep market that happens to this day uh, near this gate. Uh, in Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, this pool. It describes the pool. And in it, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Um, how many of you have traveled to third world countries where you have people with various disabilities who gather together? It's a very stark sight if you've ever been there um, and, and watched. And it, it, it's difficult um, they're looking, usually they gather in a place where they seek help. Uh, now, usually handouts or monetary help. But there, the, this pool was thought to have perhaps healing properties. Um, but there was one man, it says in verse 5, who had been there, an invalid, for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he'd already been there for a long time, he said to him, I'm going to pause just a second before we read this question, just one thing I want to say about this. Jesus Christ goes where needy people are. Okay? Very simple, but this is one of the themes of Scripture is that Jesus comes for people who know they're sick and needy. And we live in a culture that we do everything possible to appear and to not want to say that we're really in a needy position. And Word says he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And don't think of pride as in some kind of peacockish way, you know, saying, oh, I'm great. Proud is simply that I don't need God. I don't need help. I'm not a charity case. I don't need your pity. These words, and I, and I resonate, you know, I'll just confess to you, my spirit resonates with those. I don't need your pity. I'm not a charity case. Unfortunately, the Bible says we do need the pity and mercy of God. That we do need His charity. That He is the only one who's going to come and meet those needs. And this is so countercultural to us. 
So the first thing I just want to say is that where people who were in desperate need were and knew they were needy, there would be no pretense at the Bethesda pool. They're not trying to clean themselves up. Now, this guy has been an invalid for 38 years. The second thing I want to say is that 38 years is a long time. Some of you all are going through stuff and have gone through stuff. Maybe you've been through it 38 years. I haven't been through, I don't think, anything in my life 38 years that would define me like this. I've never been, I guess it's paraplegic or whatever we would call it today, unable to walk, invalid. I can't imagine what this person's life must have been like to drag themselves from place to place or to have to depend on someone to get them. He certainly didn't live there or sleep there. He had to be dropped off there or whatever. Just thinking about his world for a minute in a day and age where there would be no such social net or anything like we would have, what is his life like? What is the basics of a life like in that day? And this is where Jesus Christ was found. And noticing. I'll tell you, it's my tendency to want to turn my face away when I see need that's so abject and so desperate. I just, it's hard to watch. But I want to tell you that Jesus looks straight at the person in need. Now, was he the neediest one there? It doesn't say. I have no idea. But I know he was in a bad way. And then Jesus asked this question. Do you want to be well? Which, I mean, patently seems absurd, doesn't it? I mean, is this the question you know the answer to or whatever? I'm not going to tell you I know exactly why Jesus asked that question. The scripture doesn't say. What I find instructive as I was looking in this is the man doesn't answer the question. Look at it. Does he say, yes, I want to be healed, or no, I don't want to be healed? What does he say in response to Jesus' question? I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, because believing that somehow this foaming or bubbling water, there was a later insert that an angel stirred up the water, and that is just a a trying to understand why people would gather. It's more of a mystical sense than anything in reality, but people believed And so they said, when the water stirred up, uh, while I'm trying to get down there, only the first one would get healed. So, So when I'm going, another steps down in front of me. That doesn't tell me whether he wants to be healed or not. What he's telling is all the reasons why he can't be. Right? I I confess to you again, I do this. When God says, Lord, you know, uh, I remember when, when I was going through some we live in Central Florida, and I was going through Nancy and I were doing some counseling, and this counselor looked and said something about, you know, have you ever thought about being a pastor or something in that line of thinking? Like, we really need you to step in. And you know what my answer was? Was all the reasons why it would never work. All the barriers to being a pastor or starting a church. I wasn't ordained. At that point, I didn't have my MDiv. It cost a lot of money. I don't have the gifts. I'm just like the man at the pool of Bethesda. I give all the reasons why God is unable. Ask you, what question is God asking you? What question is God asking you and saying, do you want this from me? Do you want to see me work in your life? And can you just say, unlike me and the man here, yes, Lord, I want to see you do it. 
and not give a litany of reasons why it could never possibly happen? Because Jesus Christ wants to be active and real in your life. Now, I don't know what your particular issues are or whatever. This man didn't come knowing he didn't know who Jesus was. And I I give the man, I guess, some leeway because he didn't know who was asking him the question. We don't have that excuse. I'm just telling you right now, Jesus wants to know, are you going to let me work in your life? What is it that you want to see me work in your life? So here this man tells the reasons why he can't do it. And and again, my thought would have been, well, Jesus said, okay, well, I'll pick you up and care. That's what you want? Dude, you want to, you want to be in the water? No worries. I'm, I'm perfectly capable. Just pick you up, put you down in the water. You can be first one when the water starts to bubble up and whatever. I don't think the man would have been healed. What does Jesus say to him? He, he doesn't respond to the, what the man thinks he needs. He responds to what he actually needs. He just looks at him and he says, these are imperative commands. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, he took up his bed, and he walked power of Jesus is remarkable, and I know that it's tempting to look at, you know, the miracles and be drawn, oh, if I ever saw a miracle, if I ever, you know, if I saw the Lord working like that, then all my doubts would be over. No, they wouldn't. Just please don't think that. Miracles didn't produce faith in the Bible. They don't produce faith now, okay? They don't. Faith may produce miracles as we see God working, but but don't think that you're, we're any different, that somehow if we just saw something, faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's word. So as this man walks, and I, again, I, I don't know what he was thinking. What Can any of us really imagine how his life was altered by the coming of Christ? And in a sense, you think, well, he got what he wanted. 38 years, invalid, And now he has back his mobility. And Jesus doesn't leave him there. Because Jesus doesn't come to bring you miracles and get you well and solve your financial issues and solve my bumps and my bruises. And I just, I think I broke my nose at basketball practice a few weeks ago and it hurts and I want Jesus to heal it. And boy, if he just fixed everything in me, wouldn't it be sweet? And Jesus says, I'm not leaving you like that. Do you realize he finds the man again? At first he finds the needy man by the pool. And he looks and says, what do you want? Do you want to be healed? The guy says, I don't know. It can't never happen. And he says, just take up your bed and walk. And then the crowd, it says, because the crowd was around. Look at this. Very interesting. Now, uh, that day was the Sabbath. We'll get to that in a second. Verse 9. The Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
But he answered him, the man who healed me said, take up your bed and walk. And they said, who's this man? He said, I don't know. I don't know. He just said it and I did it. Now, the man who'd been healed, verse 13, didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, for there was a crowd in the place. What do you think would have happened at the pool of Bethesda if the man said, Hey, guys, this guy said, take up your bed and walk, and I'm healed. Right? Can you imagine the scene? This is troubling to me because in my theology, Jesus came to make every wrong right, and he would have just said, all right, line up, let's get organized here. Line A is the invalids, line B is the blind people. That would have been my, that would have been what I would have done. He could do it, right? He's God, he could do anything, and yet he chose to walk away after healing one. I'm not quite sure what to do with that, but it tells me this life is more than about getting this physical stuff right. Though that's good, and go God does it, and I believe in the miracle-working power of God, Jesus found him again. Where did he find him? Once the crowd had gone, because Jesus didn't want to be a miracle worker, a circus sideshow, he always went away from that. And he says, verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. I hope he was going to give thanks to God. You'd hope he was in the temple to say, thank you, Lord, for healing me. And Jesus finds the man again, now well, not in a position of of being an invalid. And he says, see you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse will happen to you. What could be worse than 38 years of being an invalid? A lifetime and an eternity without Jesus is worse. That Jesus called to make us holy and to bring him into rela- us into relationship with himself. And that means sin has to be dealt with, not just the corrupting effects of sin, which include disease and all that. If you deal with that, you're dealing with the fruit, not the root. And he says, you know what? You've got a deeper problem. Now, whether his affliction was related to some sin in his youth, it's irrelevant. May have been. But he says, sin no more. Don't go living your life as a person who can now walk and move as you were before. Last two things, two other things I want to say before we take the Lord's Supper. Most healings in the uh, Bible indicate that people expressed faith toward God, knowledge of Jesus, your faith has made you well, that kind of stuff. It's appropriate, and it often precedes it. Nothing like that happens here. This man doesn't know who Jesus is, expresses no doctrinal purity, doesn't acknowledge, yes, I confess my sins, you could heal me. I am so grateful to have a God that sometimes simply reaches out in compassion past my doctrine, past what I think, and just says, here's somebody who needs a touch from me and just does it. This seemed to be motivated completely out of a God of compassion. After he finds the man a second time, and this man hopefully responds, we don't really know, it doesn't say, but we're hopeful he responds to the call of God. We 
we figure that we're now introduced to the other sick people in the story. There are a number of sick people in the story, and not all of them are at the Pool of Bethesda. Second set of sick people looked at this situation and were terribly offended, weren't they, by a healing. Why? Because the healing happened on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath was rest, and the man picked up his bed, and one of the things you were not allowed to do, 39 Sabbath laws, you're not allowed to carry certain things, including your bedding. It's just one of a number of Sabbath laws, which have now morphed into hundreds of Sabbath laws today. They couldn't see a wounded man. They saw a violated principle. And Jesus says, my father works every day. No, no blue laws. That used to be when everything was closed on Sundays back in the day. You couldn't buy things on Sundays except like milk and eggs. Well, he says, we work. My father's working all the time. And I, as his son, have to be about when God directs me, I do it. They saw this, the religious leaders saw this as an opportunity to persecute Jesus. It was one of the things that offended him the most for two reasons. One, it broke their Sabbath laws, but also he blasphemed because he equated himself with God. And he said, my father and I, we've got to be simpatico. We've got to be doing the, doing the stuff together. And they said, we looked from then for an opportunity to kill him. They were sick in spirit. They weren't sick being invalids. They were sick in spirit because they couldn't see the priorities of God. Before we judge them too harshly, I, I, just, I just have to say, let's be careful that we don't become some self-righteous and priggish that because our own sense of right and wrong that's non-biblical becomes violated, that we've somehow, God can't work outside of our boxes. Let me just tell you, He'll blow your boxes apart. And it upsets me because I like my boxes. I like everything to be very neat. But that if you allow Jesus Christ and you invite him in and you say, do you want to be well? And you say, yes, Lord, then you're giving him the right to define your boxes. And my goodness, can it be uncomfortable? Get ready for the discomfort. If you're looking for a comfortable religion, I'll recommend several before Christianity. Not dead religion. Dead Christianity is perfectly comfortable because you're in control. But when the living God comes and gets a hold of you, it will totally blow your world apart. That is what he came to do, to make everything different and to blow this world up. And when it all comes back together, and when that day comes and he brings all things and the consummation of all things come and the sky opens up and we see Him again, we're going to see things completely differently than we do now. And those of us who only define things by the material world are, going to, I think, going to be mighty surprised at how limited our view was. We prepare for this day, this wonderful day, of seeing God fulfill these things as we do things like take the Lord's Supper, as we taste the bread and the wine that is a foretaste, it says, of what's to come. And I don't know the ins and outs of how all that works, but what I know is we celebrate the Lord's death until His coming again. Because it's a reminder to us that there's a reality beyond this reality that's more real 
that won't ever be shaken away, that won't change every four years or six years as tides rise and fall in our culture and political scheme. It won't rise and fall with the latest headline of who did what to whom and who's being shamed. It won't. There is a reality that lives forever with a God who is permanent. And thank God for permanent things. On the night Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his followers and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Whenever you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took a cup of wine. He gave thanks and he gave it to them and he said, Drink this, every one of you. This is my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. For when you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, help us never to be ashamed to proclaim in our workplaces, in our homes, in our culture, as strange as it may seem, as countercultural, that we proclaim your death is the way to life. And that we believe in a God who once was dead but is now alive and who lives in us, lives through us. And so, Lord, as we obey you, as we partake of this sacrament this morning, we want to remember and celebrate who you are, what you're doing, and we don't know, Lord, every answer to every question, but we know, Lord, when you ask us, do we want to be well, Lord, we can say, I'm a needy person, and yes, Lord, I want to be well. Touch me. So, Lord, as we come this morning and as we taste the little wafer, the bread, and we taste the wine as we dip it in, Lord, help us to remember that this is a foretaste Lord, of something real, as real as this taste is on our tongue, as much as we can sense it, what's more real, Lord, is your love and your eternal goodness to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.